Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week the big market news was the fact that the US 10-year bond yield broke through 3% for the first time since 2014. So we'll lead off with Michael McCarthy of CMC Markets talking about what that means. And we've also got a couple of solid economic interviews for you this week. Su Lin Ong of RBC Capital Markets on this week's CPI and Chris Richardson of Deloitte Access Economics, giving us the lowdown on his latest quarterly outlook report. And finally, Michael Packey, National Political Editor of Macquarie National News, takes me through the week's political goings-on, including the self-inflicted misery of Financial Services Minister Kelly O'Dwyer. Now I'm joined by Michael McCarthy, the Chief Market Strategist for CMC Markets Australia. Michael, the the US 10-year bond yield went above 3% this week. Um, That was a big event. Um, What do you think that means for us? It's certainly ringing alarm bells among investors. Uh, There's an ongoing debate, of course, with the better growth that we're seeing, both globally and in the US economy, what the right level of US interest rates is. Uh, And the steepening of the interest rate curve there is hurting valuations and causing some concerns for investors. From a trader's point of view, the key inflection point is actually 3.1%. And a move above that level would certainly start... um, Uh, sorry, has the potential to start a sharp sell-off in the bond market. So that's a level that the traders are watching very closely. But of course, why is that? What's the the, the significance of 3.1? Chart-based analysis. The um, 10-year bond over the long term has moved up or down to this level, but the key turning point on the charts appears to be 3.1 rather than 3. But having said that, it's clearly capturing the imagination of the broader investing public. I guess we haven't seen a sell-off on the markets, but it's you know I suppose the volatility has already gone up in the recent times, um, and uh, I guess the, the, the perhaps the move above three percent in the bond yield uh, means the volatility is not going to come down in a hurry. It's uh, that's uh, certainly the way I read it as well, Alan. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, this this move is echoing through other markets too. We've seen um, now five or six sessions in a row where the U.S. dollar has strengthened, and that's reversing the the trend we've seen over the previous months. Uh, and we've also seen the major U.S. indices come off about three percent over the same time span. So all these moves do you know, are coming at the same time. They do appear to be related, and I would agree that at the heart of it is that uh, change in interest rates. And it seems to have replaced uh, trade war as the key uh, key concern. Yes, it was interesting to note that the White House was tweeting on exactly that topic last night. It's pretty clear that um, there is a desire to move away from the threats to uh, the health of the um, global economy that that potential trade war brings about. And the appointment of two very senior US officials to travel to China to discuss the issues ahead of the the um, deadline for the tariffs uh, is seen as a very positive move by markets. Uh, Mnuchin and what's the other fellow's name? Both would be um, considered uh, economically orthodox and would certainly be aware of the dangers of a trade war and uh, markets seem to be taking a positive view on that at this stage. It does, however, have the potential to, to blow up at any time. Um, any signs that agreement won't be reached ahead of that deadline would would likely impact markets negatively. Just on the local market, Michael, um, I noticed a, a note this morning uh, from someone just saying that the um, the short interest in in our banks, the big banks, 
is elevated at the moment. I mean, it's obviously not as much shorting going on in the banks as with some of the uh, you know, overpriced mid-cap stocks, but uh, it's certainly uh, up a bit. And um, uh, I just wonder how you see the trade going on with the banks now. Is there, uh, is there a bit of activity that you're seeing, a bit of negative activity? Yes, uh, and they're seen as a high-risk area of the market at the moment because of the threats that come from the Royal Commission. Um, certainly are concerns that, at the very least, additional costs are being imposed on the banks and the potential for strong regulatory moves or increase, increases in, for example, the recently introduced tax uh, could impact the bottom line. Uh, so they're certainly not in favour at the moment, but it, it's interesting to know all four of the majors are near very key inflection points. And they seem to have got a little bit of support. I certainly wouldn't say we've seen a turnaround in sentiment, but they've had a little bit of support. And I think some of the news flow out of um, the Royal Commission last week, which highlighted other institutions, might have helped ease a little bit of the um, short-term pressure on the banks. You mean inflection points, do you mean chart-based, uh, what looks like bottoms? Yeah. Yes. So for CBA, for example, $70 is a key support level. It's sitting uh, above that. Um, for ANZ, uh, ANZ actually uh, appeared to break down through uh, support around the 27.50 level, but it's now stabilised and looks like it's it's actually made what the chartists refer to as a double bottom. Are, are you a chartist, Alan? Are we speaking the same language there? Or? No, I know what a double bottom is. <laughs> right, of course, yeah, sorry. I've got one myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine's spreading from the chin. Um, so we're actually getting positive indications from the charts. That's a little confounding given the, you know, the fundamental uh, issues that the banks are facing at the moment. But uh, yeah, we just say, so for example, ANZ uh, up until today was, has, been, has made gains the last three days. So um, the, a little bit of easing of the pressure. I think the risks remain and investors are still cautious. Joining me now to run through the week's economic news and specifically the CPI is Sue Lin Ong, Managing Director, Chief Economist and Head of Australian Research at RBC Capital Markets. Sue Lin, the CPI came out this week, obviously not quite at the 2% uh, bottom of the target range from the RBA, but do you think that the RBA will see this as confirming that inflation is heading back into its target band? I think it will. I mean, we did get a very modest inflation print for Q1, um, both headline and the key core measures. But I guess importantly, the key core measures are almost at 2% in annual terms. And they've edged a little bit higher um, over the last 12 to 18 months. They were, you know, closer to just above one and a half about 18 months ago. So they have edged slightly higher. There isn't a lot of momentum, but nevertheless, I think they're heading in the right direction. For the Reserve Bank, I suspect that will be, um, you know, consistent with their view that the economy will return to above trend growth, the labour market will strengthen and inflation will um, eventually be more comfortably in the 2 to 3% target range. So I think um, it, it will very much be consistent with their base case. We expect that them to repeat that next week uh, in their quarterly statement on monetary policy, um, that the economy remains on track uh, for stronger growth and inflation is heading in the right direction 
inflation, albeit uh, the pace of increase in inflation is pretty gradual. So I think it'll be fairly consistent um, with that view. In fact, we think there's a small chance that the RBA may upgrade slightly its inflation forecast next week. Um, Late last year, their core inflation numbers, their underlying numbers were were revised down for 2018 uh, from 2% to one and three quarters. And it's quite possible they'll edge them back up to that 2% level, which, look, is still very modest, doesn't really change our thoughts on what the bank will do. They'll still sit on the sidelines, we think, throughout the whole of uh, 18. But nevertheless, it's, it's um, you know, a story consistent with just slightly um, uh, a small list in, in the inflation outlook. I spoke to Bill Evans of Westpac last week, and he his view is that there'll be no move in interest rates in 2019 as well. And that's based on his view that uh, the Australian economy is likely to weaken next year. So where do you sit on what's likely to happen in 2019? So we um, are looking for the economy to be only modestly stronger in 19, um, around two, two and three quarter percent growth rates, um, just slightly above at 2.8. So it's a slightly better pace of growth. But um, I think for us, there's, there's a couple of things. The risk is that the composition of growth is pretty modest. And in particular, key components of domestic demand, we expect to be much weaker um, later this year and more so in 19. And that's particularly around um, housing and consumption. Um, And so growth, we think, um, as we move into 19, very much a function of stronger exports, um, stronger public spending, which has been a feature for some time, um, a little bit better private capex, non-mining, which which is a good sign. But some of the key components we are a little bit worried about, particularly housing and consumption. And so um, for us, that, that um, I think, is a little bit of a concern. Nevertheless, um, slightly firmer growth, um, a labour market that is in reasonably good shape and inflation, we think, will be edging a little bit higher Um, we think that uh, the Reserve Bank will start to normalise rates in 2019. So we have two rate hikes pencilled in for 19. Um, We thought for a long time that they would stay on hold uh, for a very long and extended period. Um, And I think really what's going to be key, um, there's many factors, but I think what will be key is how the labour market pans out really over the next 12 months because that's important in terms of a number of factors. Um, Obviously, confidence, confidence, you know, whether it improves the wage story, um, whether it starts to feed in a little bit more to higher inflation, I think that's really going to be key in determining, um, you know, how long the bank stays on the sidelines. Um, and, and, ha- and, what, and what do you think, what, what do you think the fiscal situation will, will mean for this? Cause, because obviously it's clear that the budget is improving more rapidly mm-hmm. uh, than the government have predicted. So maybe they're going to do some pretty big tax cuts and maybe that'll help the economy next year. That's entirely possible. Um, it does sound from, you know, some of the headlines that we're seeing in the run-up to the Commonwealth budget that the budget's clearly in better shape. Um, the Treasurer's proposal to uh, drop the uh, proposed uh, Medicare levy from 1st of July 19 is consistent with that. And we know as well from the revenue numbers that uh, we're tracking a bit above MAIFO. So there is some encouraging news there. It does absolutely set up scope for, um, for you know, potential... Um, spending in other areas. And the most obvious one is personal income tax cuts. Now, the key will be when they are delivered. Um, we suspect they will be uh, you know, announced in the upcoming budget, but probably delivered in the next fiscal year um, after, uh, the, you know, after the next election. So, um, at, 
yeah, definitely. Um, that may help uh, the consumption side. Um, and I think it'll be much needed because we think consumers face a whole number of headwinds. I mean, when you look at debt levels, when you look at confidence, it's been a bit patchy. When you look at fairly stagnant wages growth. And importantly, when you look at, you know, where the real cost pressures are, and you can see it in the CPI, um, the big increases are in non-discretionary spending, health, education, um, utilities. And so we think consumers face a whole whole bunch of pressures um, going forward. And so, you know, um, if we do see some income tax cuts, that would definitely help out. But overall, we, we still think consumption looks pretty modest um, over the next 12 to 18 months. I'm joined now by Chris Richardson, partner at Deloitte Access Economics, and they've just published their quarterly business outlook, which is always worth reading and always worth talking to Chris about. Well, Chris, there was an interesting line in uh, in your report uh, on the economy, which was that um, uh, something to the effect that uh, we'd, we'd uh, or the Reserve Bank had protected our economy from a sharper slowdown by cutting interest rates to the bone, but that's left consumers stretched, uh, which will mean that they might provide less support to growth uh, next this year and next year. So uh, that's kind of counterintuitive. I would have thought I, I would have thought low interest rates would leave the consumers okay, but you're saying that it's left them stretched. Um, it's it's left them stretched in the sense that it did protect the uh, Australian economy in recent years, but now our consumers have run up a lot of debt and they're being a bit more cautious as a result. Essentially, Australia went from a China boom to a house price boom. Uh, we, whether or not people realised that that was the conscious decision, uh, we cut interest rates, we revved up housing prices. The average Australian family saw their net wealth uh, 18 months ago uh, lift to be higher than a million dollars. And we took that love to town. You know, we, we spent it at the shops, we also built more homes. And what we did was successfully help to fill a pothole in Australia's economy that was left as China cooled. Now, the well, global economy is looking pretty good, um, excellent in, in many fronts. We won't benefit quite as much as we'd otherwise have done because of the, the filling of the pothole that occurred in between. Our, our consumers have already uh, run a little too hard uh, in the meantime, and they're going to be a little more cautious because of that. But, the, but Chris, the, there's an awful lot of debt in the rest of the world as well. Um, America, Japan, China. There's, I mean, it's not just Australia that's got lots of debt. Um, uh, true. If you're looking at, uh, at it, though, in terms of household debt, uh, Australia is second only to the Swiss. Uh, we're in silver medal uh, position, um, measured as uh, our debts relative to our incomes. Uh, and, and we have taken on... Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not as though that's been true for a long time. We've actually taken on uh, a lot of debt across the, the last decade or so. Uh, and we've done it all across a period in which interest rates were um, falling and, and then reached what were record lows by Australian experience. Now, it's not that those interest rates will turn around anytime soon, but uh, equally, they're not permanently nailed to the floor. They will lift. We would say they would lift sometime in the first half of 2019, and keep going. And at that stage, the you know what's been, if you like, the, um, the successful policy of going from a China boom to, uh, to a house price. But, you know, it did support us when we'd otherwise have been weaker. 
uh, that's when the butcher's bill of of the uh, run-up in debt will be evident. Uh, so a lot of your report is about the synchronised global growth that we're experiencing, and I guess that and you're pointing out that Australia is possibly likely to to um, you know miss out on the full uh, full benefit of that because of the debt here. But um, to what extent is the global growth due to low inflation, which is keeping interest rates uh, down? Um, look, I think a chunk of it uh, is exactly that. You know, yes, we have the best global growth in some years, and yes, it's spread. You know, pretty much um, every major economy in the world uh, has been picking up speed over the last year or so, uh, with the sole exception of the UK. Uh, and that is great, but you're quite right to call out the unusual feature. Uh, for uh, some time now, we've had uh, lifting global growth, but we really haven't had lifting global inflation. Now, those two would ordinarily go together, and the extra thing you would get would be higher interest rates, and that would be the restraining factor, if you like, um, on on the global expansion of the moment. And it will eventually happen, same as, as here in Australia. Arguably, Australia will be at the uh, back end of it. Um, lowflation is not permanent. You're starting to see the earliest signs of stresses and strains on pricing pressures in, in the US. Interest rates will go up uh, around the world, but that'll be a slow process, and the global economy's got um, time to gallop a little further. Uh, before it eventually gets reined in. Um, and uh, you're also playing down the um, the risk of a trade war. Um, could you t- give us your thinking about that? Um, simply because trade war is one of those headline hoggers, uh, and and you know it's it's important, it's dumb, it's all those things. Um, but it's not as big as people think it is. Um, We've actually modelled what the impact of a, uh, a trade war between US and China, That's something worse than um, already seen to date. Uh, and and that thing, you know, that, that worse than we've seen to date thing uh, would mean about 20,000 fewer jobs here in Australia, uh, in, in mining and construction, in retail. Um, so not a good thing, but still not a big thing. You know, you're talking... Uh, more than 10 million people with a job uh, in Australia. Uh, and absolutely the the dominant global story is not a trade war, not what happened so far, not even if it gets a bit worse from here. It is that synchronised global upswing that's been underway for a while and is still uh, in full roar. And do you think that... Um, uh well, well, what what do you think is the is the biggest risk to the Australian economy? Is it the debt that you called out at the start? Um, we're on that sort of Goldilocks pass that have been uh, not too hot and not too cold, uh, and there's that element true uh, around the world as well. You can see two sorts of potential problems for Australia. One is that the news is good enough globally and locally that interest rates go up. Uh, and interest rates are a different beastie now um, than they used to be. You've seen the uh, Reserve Bank Governor um, warn of the potential impact of that first rate rise. Essentially, um, in terms of family finances, um, the the relative impact of um, one percentage point increase in interest rates today, the equivalent of about two and a half or even three percentage points on interest rates 
a quarter of a century ago. So um, that would be a restraining factor. Risk number one is actually news that's too good uh, and Australia's heavy indebtedness gets, uh, you know, acts as an anchor as interest rates uh, go back up. Um, risk number two is that something goes bad uh, in the global economy. Uh, now, you know, that could be started by a trade war, uh, though, um, again, the key about trade war, trade mostly just redirects uh, in a trade war, and that might be clunky and expensive, but it's not by and large something that induces a global recession. I guess I would still rate the bigger risk uh, as uh, what could happen in China, which is still doing a very tricky economic transition. It's doing it well, but people, I think, underestimate the difficulty of what uh, China is doing. And if China sneezed, uh, Australia would very much catch cold. You don't need uh, much of a slowdown for long in China, I think, to generate a, a mild recession here at home in Australia. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. I'm joined now by Michael Packey, the National Political Editor for Macquarie Media, the radio network. Just on the Royal Commission, Michael, um, it was so interesting that last Sunday, uh, uh, Kelly O'Dwyer was on the spot on Insiders and, and was, you know, playing a straight bat and refusing to concede that they might have made a mistake. And then I think within 24 hours, Malcolm Turnbull overseas conceded that they did. So she was hung out to dry. It was amazing. Yeah, look, I agree with you. She clearly was uh, hung out to dry. And given that uh, the uh, Prime Minister literally, as you say, within a couple of hours of uh, Kelly O'Dwyer giving that interview, uh, then in London, uh, he did say, look, we did make a political mistake uh, by not uh, holding a Royal Commission uh, much earlier. I'm really surprised that uh, given that they would have known that Kelly O'Dwyer was going on to uh, the Insiders program, why they didn't really have much more of a straight line as to how they were going to handle that question as to whether or not they got it wrong when it came uh, to uh, the Royal Commission. Clearly, some of the stuff that's come out of the Royal Commission over the 17, 18 days that it's been sitting has disturbed the community in general. It sent shockwaves uh, through uh, the market and probably the sector. They didn't realise that so much would be coming out in such a short period of time, and there's still a year to go. And now the government, obviously, is under pressure to either extend the Royal Commission beyond this year-long deadline and potentially give it uh, more resources. There's no doubt, Alan, that uh, Bill Shorten and Labor are going to continue to put uh, the pressure on the government over this matter when Parliament uh, resumes in just a couple of weeks' time, given that there are so many quotes of the Prime Minister, of Scott Morrison and of Kelly O'Dwyer playing down the relevance or importance of uh, having a Royal Commission. Yeah, and I imagine those quotes are going to be played, uh, especially in the election campaign that's coming up. Oh, look, uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, there's no doubt about that they will use those sorts of quotes uh, in any of uh, uh, election campaigning uh, material. And potentially that's what was driving uh, Kelly O'Dwyer's answers uh, on uh, Insiders over the weekend. Potentially she didn't want to say something that she felt that then could be used by Labor in uh, campaign material. But for uh, the Prime Minister, as I say, to come out not long after and say that they made a political mistake was interesting. And it was also interesting, Alan, that he decided 
decided to choose those words, political mistake, that uh, if they'd gone to a royal, or if they'd called a royal commission much earlier, they would probably have suffered less damage politically. But he, but he did say that in the 18 months or so that it took them to call the royal commission, that uh, the government did attempt to tighten rules and regulation and uh, give uh, the corporate regulator a bit more money to try and investigate and so forth. However, as we've also seen in the time that the Royal Commission has been uh, sitting, it seems that uh, the major banks and AMP, for that matter, were very happy to uh, mislead the corporate regulator and uh, not give the corporate regulator the information that it needed to deal with uh, some of the problems that have been uh, exposed. But, you know, uh, you know, I suppose all that's now by the by as uh, more information and shocking revelations come out. Certainly is. I mean, I, I, it's beginning to look to me like um, the only feather that uh, the coalition has to fly with now is the fact that the budget's in better shape than uh, expected, and therefore they might be able to bribe the voters. Yeah, well, look, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of that. Uh, on uh, Thursday, we had uh, the government announcing that it was planning to scrap uh, the Medicare levy or the hike in the Medicare levy. It was meant to go up from 2% to 2.5% to help pay for uh, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. There's a few things, I suppose, that we've got to keep in mind here is that uh, this increase to the Medicare levy was only announced in last year's budget. And now they're saying because uh, tax revenue is uh, increasing... Uh, that they no longer need to uh, pursue this increase in the levy uh, of the NDIS and so that they're able to fund that with the money uh, that's uh, coming in. I do think that that does jar somewhat with what uh, the government has been saying in previous months, that uh, one of the reasons that they, you know, whenever they get a bit of extra money, they want to use that money to try and pay down debt and reduce uh, the deficit. Now they've come out and said, well, uh, you know, we don't need to increase the Medicare levy anymore because there's enough uh, money in the kitty. And, uh, you know, I do find that interesting, given that it was only a year ago that they were saying uh, that... Uh, there, they, there were serious concerns about how the NDIS could be funded into the future and that uh, this increase in the Medicare levy was needed to raise the $8 billion to fund uh, the NDIS beyond uh, 2020. And maybe what we are also seeing here, Alan, is that uh, potentially the government could could be considering uh, an early election and uh, starting to put some of those budget sweeteners in. Maybe this is Scott Morrison's last budget before an election uh, is held. I think it certainly is, but but um, I, you know, um, it's always a bit of a uh, problem for coalitions, conservative uh, governments, um, to use the uh, improvement in the budget to um, to uh, shower the electorate with with money, um, while yep. at the same time. Uh, well, well, at the same time, holding themselves out as fiscal conservatives. It's, uh, it's yeah, kind of I a think a trick to, to, to play, well, isn't it? And we, well, absolutely. We saw that even happen during the uh, Howard and Costello years, where they were getting uh, all this money from the binding boom and uh, did offer uh, a fair bit of uh, benefits uh, to uh, virtually every Australian. Uh, but now we are in a different shape. Uh, the budget uh, uh, isn't, is, isn't, is, 
isn't in as good a shape as it was during those years. I mean, sure, debt and deficit is coming down, but the government says it's still committed to a surplus by 2021 or mid-2021. So you would think uh, it is going to be interesting to see the way uh, the Treasury is able to sell this uh, on uh, May the 8th, how they're able to get to uh, a budget surplus, but at the same time make a whole bunch of spending measures as well, which we're assuming are going to be in the infrastructure space. And of course, they still seem to be committed to a personal income tax cuts. But how big are those personal income tax cuts are going to be? Yeah. And just finally, Michael, um, uh, obviously Malcolm Turnbull passed his 30th news poll and mm. everyone's moved on. But it is the case, isn't it, that um, on current polls, if, if there was an election held now, um, mm. the, the government would lose, right? Oh, absolutely. The government would still lose if an election were held uh, this weekend. Um, the only consolation that the government can take from uh, the news poll that was released uh, this week is that it's uh, narrowed Labor's lead over the coalition. So in the 30th news poll, the lead between the coalition and Labor, well, Labor's lead over the coalition was four points. Uh, in the 31st news poll, uh, Labor's lead has narrowed to within two points. And obviously, Malcolm Turnbull remains a preferred uh, prime minister over Bill Shorten. So I think that uh, the way that a lot of people in the coalition are thinking is that if they can continue on this trajectory of closing the gap between the coalition and Labor, potentially they do have a chance uh, at the next election. But I think the problem for the coalition at the moment continues to be is their primary vote. It's below uh, 40%. Uh, it sits on about 37, 38%. But that's, I don't know if that's enough for them to actually win an election when uh, the popularity of one nation seems to be stagnating. And uh, the La and Labor can obviously always rely on preferences from the Greens and probably from a few other left-leaning uh, minor parties to get it over the line. But one thing I will say, Alan, it does appear that whenever the election is held, even though it it seems that the coalition would lose, I think the contest is going to be a lot tighter than people think. Give me a kiss to build a dream on And my imagination will thrive upon that kiss Well, yesterday it was my birthday, which, as it happens, I share with Melania Trump wife of the current president of the United States, although I was having my 18th birthday party when she was being born in 1970. Anyway, I thought it might be good to play you the number one song when I was born in April 1952. And according to Wikipedia, it was Louis Armstrong's A Kiss to Build a Dream On, which we can also play in honour of my new grandson, Alfie. A kiss to build a dream on When I'm alone with my fancies I'll be with you That's it for Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week. <laughs>